I never once thought that maybe because they lived in America that their belief systems were changing too. What are my values? What do I really want to do? Time isn't running out. My journey gives me a different perspective on life. Everyone is like that. I kind of feel a little more fearless than chasing music all the way. I want you to learn that there's a difference between speaking poorly about your parents and speaking clearly about things that are affecting you. The fulfillment is not going to come without hard work. You know in your heart kind of who you are. It's the right choice. It's 100% the right choice. When you're they see like those questions. Stay. There's like a deeper meaning behind all of this. Like yeah. it's, it's how you were raised, what you were taught, what you were conditioned to believe. This is the Desi Condition. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Desi Condition. I'm your host, Thanushree, and I am really excited about today's episode. Um, I've just been loving all of the conversations that we've been having this season. Uh, you know, I just had a nine-hour day of training um, because I'm a new teacher, and it's like been really reflective and really intense. Uh, so I'm sufficiently tired, but then I think about what's going on here at the Desi Condition, and it just like gives me a lot of hope for the world, and it brings me joy. So I'm really excited to be back today. Um, anyway, that's enough about me. We have a really great guest today, and I know I say that about all the guests, but he really is great. His name is Mohammed Faisal. He is the founder and CEO of Money Hub, which is a wonderful organization that works to educate people, uh, especially kids, on financial health. And I'll let him expound on that some more, uh, but he's a super interesting, super accomplished guy. Um, he's here to talk to us today about financial health and what motivated him to start Money Hub and just to talk about the intersection of financial and mental health. Hi, Mohammed. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. So can you just introduce yourself to us and tell us a little more about Money Hub? Yes. Um, so my name is Mohammed Faisal. Um, uh, my family and I, we immigrated to Queens, New York from Bangladesh and uh, pretty much grew up in New York City all over the place. And uh, one thing that is very deep in my heart is being able to provide the next generation of kids in New York City and beyond with a financial education so they can uh, be armed with the right tools to flourish as adults. Mm -hmm. So why did you choose to start Money Hub? So I, I chose to start it because um, it was something that really intersected with my career goals and uh, my goals to make the kind of impact that I want to make to my community and the community of New York City as a whole. And um, the reason it, it all got started was, uh, well, it started for me even beyond um, college where when I really started the Money Hub. But the idea of um, having financial education was something that was ingrained in me from a very young age. Um, I would say like pretty much, uh, you know, my dad came to America first and then he brought us over, my brother, my sister, and my mother. And uh, ba basically when he came here, he didn't really understand the financial system here. So he got credit cards and he didn't really know what was credit score for. So he, um, he ran up his credit cards and um, and it really hurt his credit score. But my mom, she saw that, she learned from that. She understood the importance of a credit score and she was able to build up a savings and, um, and then build up her credit score right in time of 2007, 2008, where um, when uh, gentrification really hit Queens very hard. 
It was already hitting other parts of the city, but it was then focused in Queens, specifically the neighborhood that we were living in, a family of six of us in, um, in Astoria, Queens, where um, with all the gentrification, landlords just kept raising rent and we had to move around a lot. It got to a point where uh, we got uh, we got priced out of our neighborhood. And uh, right around that time, my mom utilized her knowledge and um, understood what a mortgage was. And um, she was able to mortgage us a home in uh, Jamaica, Queens, which is another part of Queens, but it was still affordable for, for working class families. And, um, and then it was the first time that we ever had a home. And, uh, and that feeling just always stuck with me. And, I, and then as I started high school at that point, in 2007, my freshman year at Brooklyn Tech. So that had kids from all over the the city, not only just in Queens, but not only in Brooklyn, but from the Bronx and, and even as far down as Far Rockaway and Staten Island as well. And basically just seeing all these kids from various backgrounds and they were dealing with the same issues that that my family did or had to deal with, which is a lack of financial knowledge and then dealing with the cost of, the increasing cost of living, of living in New York City. And um, and then with that, you know, I, I felt like that there was nothing going through the public school system. There was nothing really set up for us to be well-educated in, in our finances, to be able to not only afford to live there with your family, but be able to thrive as adults in New York City. So it was a need that I wanted to um, fill, that I wanted to see get filled. And the truth is there's a ton of organizations out there that are trying to teach financial literacy or have created financial tools. But the thing is that they just haven't cracked the code on how to, on how to get teenagers, uh, especially from immigrant and low-income background, to actually engage with the knowledge and to understand the knowledge that, that they're trying to get across. So I feel like that's a hole that, um, that my team and I, we could fill. So that's why I started the money hub while at college at city college of New York at, um, at my senior year, which was in 2016. And right before graduating, I had built my team up and, um, and it was other like-minded individuals who have experienced similar issues of financial hardships and a lack of financial education in the neighborhoods they were from in New York City. And uh, and we just kind of got together and decided to like do something about it. And that's how the Money Hub was born in 2016. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Um, you said that you started a team, you're in college, um, that's awesome. Uh, and it seems like the thing that you're able to do differently is that, um, well, actually, that's a question I have for you. What is it that you're able to do differently? I know that you've mentioned kind of having a different perspective, which is something that these other organizations don't have as much. Um, can you speak to that some more? Yes. So uh, so what we started out doing was uh, designing a curriculum and then... Um, and then building technology to kind of convey it, whether that's uh, through uh, not just technology, but through materials that was uh, that was designed for engagement for kids that they could relate to more. We weren't, um, and then we went and we did workshops in person at organizations that brought us in, like like the Boys and Girls Club of Queens, like Brotherhood Sister Soul in Harlem, like Brooklyn College, and and other high schools that we've um, that we've gone to since, and. 
the thing that we do different is that we're not going in there as as retired accountants who are you know just checking off their list of volunteer hours or where they're going no we're we're going there with the insight of we were recently in high school we just went through college or we're just going through college and we kind of understand some of the pitfalls and some of the do's and don'ts that um that we wish we had known about so then it just kind of built on that and then we decided to expand it a little bit more because as we got into the classroom we weren't just there to teach the kids but we're also there to learn from them to learn their needs to learn their uh, their their struggles to learn their um, their worries to learn their hopes and dreams for the future and how we can assist them in planning for a future that they want to have not a future that we're building for them but a future that they want to have a future that they want to build and we're just there to assist them to make sure that they don't fall into the same financial pitfalls that we might have fell into yeah i'm liking that you're talking so much about getting like client feedback and and making like a like a student centered design um or designing your curriculum so that it's student centered that's really important and and just i think it's really interesting that you're going into these classrooms and you know you're talking about something that happened to you really like only a few years ago um relatively few as opposed to like you know these accountants or something who might be going in after like after like many many years of being in accounting and might be kind of removed from what it would be like to to be like a second gen first or second generation like child of an immigrant exactly and and that's the perspective that we take into it as well you know like being being an immigrant myself and then as well as then growing up in urban neighborhoods and urban areas really understanding some of the struggles that my friends have gone up gone through and and understanding that like there's a lack of knowledge and a lack and a big discord there between the knowledge that is necessary and the knowledge that's being given and and they don't kind of match up so just having that insight we applied it to what we wanted to do and then just taking in the feedback that's huge because what we're doing now is that up until covid hit in march we were going into the organizations they were bringing us in to do our workshops in person and then what happened with covid is that we had to cancel our spring curriculum as well as a big chunk of our summer except for with one organization brotherhood sister soul who this was the fifth summer in a row we conducted financial education workshops for their youth and uh, basically uh, we did it virtually but then during the time we we decided to pivot and um digitize our curriculum and take into all the considerations of what the kids liked and what worked and what got them to really understand some of the more difficult concepts that that other organizations or other programs have not been able to get across to kids so we took all that we applied it in digitizing our curriculum and and building out our platform which is app based and desktop based which we plan on launching in September at at a subscription basis for uh, for schools and other youth serving organizations and even employers that want to bring it in for their employees to learn in a easy simple fun and interactive way uh, and well, as well as give uh, give kids a nice well deserved break from all the zooms and other virtual uh, virtual learning platform to this gaming learning platform Okay, this is great. There's a lot to there's a lot to cover here, uh, to unpack here. So, 
Okay, so COVID happened, big elephant in the room. I was always going to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, COVID happened, you had to pivot. And what yeah. you came up with, which is a super interesting solution, was an app-based solution. You're also doing online classes, you mentioned, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, what happened was that we, we had uh, our curriculum planned for the spring in person. Entire curriculum, not just a couple of workshops, but like eight weeks of workshops, uh, like two workshops per week. Um, and they're hour long each. So, you know, they're not like long and boring seminars or anything like that. It's just an hour of interactive fun and learning. And basically we had that planned with the Boys and Girls Club of Queens and uh, and TRIO, which is an organization in, based out of Brooklyn College that uh, that serves the youth in the surrounding neighborhoods of Crown Heights and uh, and uh, East New York. And uh, as well as with the Brother and Sister Soul in um, in Harlem. And we had to basically cancel that because schools were closed mm-hmm. and uh, big gatherings were essentially banned. And um, and we wanted and we cared about the safety of the of our staff as well as the school staff as well as uh, the kids to not put them in a big room together at a time when social distancing and all that had to be practiced. And yeah. so basically, we ended up canceling that. And then the same thing for the summer, because even now, you know, like there's a lot of uncertainty around getting together. So we had to cancel it. But then the, the one organization that, that we've been working with for five years in a row now, Brotherhood Sister Soul, they, you know, basically emailed me and they let, let me know that they can't imagine a summer without the Money Hub being part of it. So they wanted, they were going virtual for the summer. So they wanted us to see if we could be part of it and, we did that. So I basically, for the last three weeks, I uh, did three workshops with the new incoming cohorts at, um, at Brothers Sister Soul. And, um, and I worked with them virtually where it was through Zoom. And, um, and basically, that was the only workshops that we have done the, so far this year. And um, what we're doing is that we're trying to build out this, uh, this digital platform so kids can do it from their phone or their uh, laptop and uh or tablet and uh, the teachers could monitor from their end to see how the kind of progress the students are making and um and where they need help where their weaknesses and strengths are so that kind of data is is hard to convey without a digital platform you know like in terms of just time and and in terms of like um communications you know so they could just log into their site and see how the students are doing and then from their end as well, each student from like, let's say the, the classroom at Boys and Girls Club, they could compete against each other based on the points they gained from answering the questions at the end of each, at the end of each uh, topic, uh, you know, based on if they answer correctly or how long it takes them and things like that. Other criteria there to rack up points. And then the top three people in terms of points would get Amazon gift cards from us. So. So we keep the, the competitive part in it as well. So we basically thought about what we can take that we do in our workshop well and get good interaction and good um, good learning outcome out of and um, and mimic it in this digital platform and and then be be you know like disaster proof the business as well as be able to continue to teach the kids who during this time are gonna lose lose the most, you know, like it's usually low income low-income and immigrant kids there's mm-hmm. there's data out there about how how much kids from low-income and immigrant background lose uh, 
lose in terms of learning outcome in the summer because uh, wealthier kids are either getting tutored at home or are being part of extracurricular things and like that. So, so summer in low-income areas and immigrant areas is just essentially just summer school for kids who fell fell behind during the during the semester. But what yeah. really needs to be there is summer programming for kids to learn even more, even during their time off from school. So, so we feel like. Yes, the focus is heavily on right now remote things that they need like English and and math and and sciences, but we can't lose the extracurricular learning as well because that also builds the whole child, you know, and not just not just a kid who's who's prepared to take the the regents and things like that. Um okay, I love that you're talking about this gamified system of of uh learning about finances. And it's really interesting because I'm going through new teacher training right now. And a lot of what we're talking about is how to contextualize the stuff that we're teaching. And I'm teaching calculus, which is like notoriously the hated subject. And it's like people are kids are like, this is not even a real subject. It's a very real subject, my friends. And it's very relatable. And so we're talking a lot about like how to contextualize calculus. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and other subjects. Um, but it's interesting because for you, like you almost have to decontextualize it um, by gamifying it, which is such a beautiful way to learn. Um, I mean, I think about how to gamify math all the time as well. So I'm I'm loving that approach. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also really want to drive home the point of developing the whole child. Yes. I love that you said that. I think that is not just like really beneficial for the kid in the long run, but in the short term too, because... I, this is how you maintain good mental health, especially in this time when things are very uncertain for them, um, especially for them. Yes, very, very uncertain. So uh, in related, in, wait, I'm sorry, did I cut you off? No, you didn't cut me off. You're good. I was just going to mention how like, you know, like during COVID time, it's uh, especially uncertain for kids because, you know, they, they know what's going on. Like, I think parents have this... Um, have this like belief that their kids have no idea what's going on in the real world or or they want to shelter them from uh, from what's going on and I and I totally get that I'm certain like you want to keep kids from worrying over the news and stuff like that and so they can focus on their imagination and and really just thinking or having a positive outlook on their future and such but they know what's going on with COVID mm-hmm. and, and what it's really doing to like people and their and their income and their and their mental well-being and their um, and their um, hopes for the future. So, so I would recommend like any parents out there, or any uh, sibling, older siblings out there, or aunts and uncles, or even grandparents, to uh, take this opportunity to really talk to the kids in your life, and really get it across to them like the kind of view that you have, which should be a positive view for the outlook of the future that this too will pass and we're going to get out of this at some point. Yeah, I think sheltering kids from knowing the full truth is a really, really bad idea. I've always felt that way. Uh, I think that we need to hold our kids to higher standards because otherwise it makes them think that their opinion, their feelings are not valued. Um, And that's just going to translate into a lot of chaos in adulthood. No, absolutely. Like, don't you know, be scared to talk to your kids about your p- financial pitfalls. So like any any mistakes that you made, maybe related to COVID, like um, 
maybe you ended up, um, you know, just, just one pretty vague example, but um, let's say like um, you, you're a business owner and, uh, and you're thinking about expanding your restaurant chain or, or business chain or storefront chain and you decided to get a lease at another place, which was a very good deal before COVID-19. And then because of that, you had to take a L, let's say like, let's say you took a financial loss, but, but really just talking about that with your kids is a big deal because then you could talk about how you bounce back from that, how you managed to like, okay, yeah, I, I took that L on that lease, but I, I streamlined my budget. And, um, and because of that, I was able to cut some of my expenditure and I'm still all right. You know, like nothing bad is happening, you know, but it's a learning experience that you can't always predict the future and you shouldn't be looking to predict the future. You should just be, you should just be looking at how you could react to the uncertain future that's ahead. So I think uh, this is a huge opportunity for parents to really talk to their kids and, and, uh, and instill resiliency in them, which is going to help them more than uh, anything that they learn in school, essentially. You're so right. I can't agree with you more. I think you're so right. Um, I want to know about what's the feedback that you've gotten from the kids so far, both for the online model and just about the mission of Money Hub uh, in general and how you've been executing. Yes, so, um, so one thing that I take a huge pride in was is that of the 4,000 kids that we've served to date, not a single kid has acted out ever or been disrespectful ever in any of our sessions, never. They just, they just always love that we treat them and we speak to them like, like you know, like we're there to help you. We're not here to talk down upon you, or to uh, talk shit about your dream or something like that. You know, sorry, sorry if I curse, uh, but <laughs> um, okay. but yeah, you know, like they always understood that we were there to help them. And even one kid said to us, "It's like, you know, like this stuff is difficult for me, but I I love the fact that." that we're able to engage with it because I'm very open to anybody that is trying to tell me things that's going to better my future. So I think there's this huge misconception out there that kids, especially kids from low income or immigrant backgrounds who may act up in, in classes and stuff like that, don't give a shit about their future. And that's just not true from, from our experience. Like we were there and every kid in there, knew what we were there for and understood it even if they had a hard time understanding some of the concepts they never were like oh you know like they never showed that they don't value this kind of knowledge they do value it and and the feedback from that is uh, just been like they love that it's fun and it's a positive environment and it allows them to be themselves and kind of talk about their dreams and and their aspiration and then learning how to plan towards that. It just makes it seem a lot more real than just, you know, writing about something on career day or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't see me right now, but I've just been nodding my head the whole time because I'm just, I'm just loving everything, <laughs> everything that you're saying. It's, um, it's very Thank powerful, um, especially about like, just, you know, treating, treating the kids like they're capable um, is what I'm getting from yeah. what you're saying. And, and they are, and the, I think kids will, will surprise you. And, I mean, the, their behavior really speaks to it, yes. right? The, just the fact that they've never acted out. That's like 4,000 kids and they've never acted out. That's never. Awesome. And, and we've been in uh, in some of the quote-unquote 
tough schools or rough schools, you know, or like, or difficult with difficult mm -hmm. kids. And, um, and that's never been the case where, you know, like none of these kids were difficult to us or acted, you know, like rough or, or, um, not interested or anything like that. You know, it was just like, they were there and they love talking about their dreams and their aspiration. And we love listening to it. And that's where it comes down to everything that we designed at the money hub is centered around their dreams and aspiration for the future. And everything else is just secondary to it, to where money does not end up being coming an obstacle or an end goal to the dream and the kind of life that they want to live as adults. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit so we could talk about you a little bit. What are some of the challenges that you think immigrants face with money? And why do you think that they in particular have such issues with money? And maybe you can speak more to the Bengali experience too, since I know you're Bangladeshi. Yeah, so I think like in the sense of like immigrants, like let's say our parents, they came here and they've just, you know, like had a different relationship with money because they're in a foreign land and uh, and where they feel like they're an outsider. So money is something that they like either cling on to or have been chasing. And just like in the middle of that, they, um, they've lost this opportunity to learn that money is a tool, a tool that you use. And, and one thing that we have to remember is that a lot of immigrants that come here from Bangladesh and other places like Pakistan or India or, or Nepal, and um, or even from Africa or um, South America, Europe, and other parts of the world. You know, they don't. It's not always just like middle class or well-off immigrants who can travel. A lot of the times, it's poor immigrants who, like you know, don't have a lot of property or a lot of money back home to where they uh, where they can always you know like go back to or or have access to. So. So to them, you know, like money was um, was something that, that was scarce back in their country. And now they're here in this new land where there's wealth all around them. You know, like New York City is a prime example of like the juxtaposition of wealth with where you have like all these high rises and, and like the finance capital of the world. Yet there's people who are living on like barely $10 a day in some parts of the city. So... So it's just like that just gets even more magnified for poorer immigrants who are now here and now have to adjust to this difficult financial system and also not knowing who to trust, you know, they either become really, um, really closed off or, or get taken advantage of even by, even by people from, you know, like who they feel are their countrymen and uh, who would probably look out for them in their mind, but then get taken advantage of by them. So they, I think they have a very closed off kind of mindset when it comes to money and their relationship with it. And they have a very static outlook about what success really means. So success to them is becoming a doctor or becoming an engineer and, um, and anything outside of that just does not seem like is a path to success from them. And that's not just to say that they don't, you know, they don't care about their kids' dreams and aspiration, but it's just that they are, they don't want them to struggle 
the way that they had to struggle when they first came to this country. So a lot of times they feel like that they're doing the right thing or they're doing the tough thing. But in reality, it's, um, you know, like the, the reality of things is that you're going to be successful in the things that you do if it's what you enjoy, do, and you're good at, you know. So I think that's the message that we try to get across to kids who are immigrant or from immigrant backgrounds or household in our workshops or in our cohorts, as well as from low-income backgrounds, you know, like kids who grew up poor here as opposed to growing up poor in another country, you know, like it's the same thing where they feel like that their dreams and aspirations are are meaningless or, or worthless. And the truth is it's not. And and that's kind of the message that we try to get across to to kids who might be first generation immigrants or, or second generation immigrants where, you know, like you don't have to become a doctor or you don't have to become an engineer, you know, to be successful. And and I also want to get across that I have nothing against uh, accountants, engineers, and doctors. I think they're great field. I'm just trying to say that you could also be a musician. You could also be a, a ball player. You could also be, um, you know, a, a city a, a city servant, like a politician, or, or you work for the government, or you could be a teacher, or you could be a, a garbage man. And if that's your passion, if that's what you're good at, you're going to be successful at it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, what I've noticed with, uh, with, with immigrants, and I really don't know a lot about uh, finances and immigration, but what I've noticed is like mindless saving rather than investing. Um, and so like there, there isn't really the opportunity for something like generational wealth to be passed on. Yes, because, um. Because uh, I'll get back to the point that I was mentioning of how they feel like an other in this country. It's it's hard for a lot of um, a lot of you know a lot of Bangladeshi, uh, and I'm sure this is true for other Desi people as well, where they have a hard time grasping around the point that this is their home now, that this is where they work hard. Yeah, they kind of keep thinking they're gonna go yeah. home. Like, oh, I'm gonna go back. Yeah, one like day. like my dad, for example, like before my mom, you know, like kind of like forced him into you know like buying a home here he just spent a lot of his money in buying properties in Bangladesh which makes no sense because the the time that he came to America an example would be Astoria like he could have bought a house here at that time for like maybe $250,000 which is a lot but if he understood like getting a mortgage to do so he would probably need like maybe $50,000 or less to be able to own a property in Astoria, which at this point or even 10 years ago would be a million dollar property. So just understanding to build wealth like that, you don't you know, real estate is the number one way that Americans build up their wealth, build up generational wealth. And immigrants have a hard time understanding that, but they understand that for properties back home or, you know, Bangladesh for one example. And uh, they tend to put a lot of their money there as opposed to putting it here where has a bigger chance of growing and ultimately if he did that he would have had money to not only buy more properties here but more properties in Bangladesh as well so I think just that just that mindset of being an other and not understanding um, not understanding investing the only thing they that they do understand is savings and saving is a great thing mm -hmm. I tell kids to save for an emergency as as myself have faced a huge emergency last year and still sort of in it where um, 
So I'll talk a little bit about it down the line. But um, I was I was in a car accident last year, January of 2019, where I suffered a traumatic brain injury, which led me to you know like not being able to work all of last year. And uh, and um, I was using a wheelchair for a good half part of the year last year. And uh, it was just the toughest thing in my life, and I'm still dealing with as I as I go to therapy. But then it taught me the importance of having an emergency saving, and that's something that I always tell kids: like you got to put away money for emergency saving, money that you don't touch unless an emergency comes up, you know. But then that's not where all your money should be going. A certain percentage, uh, we recommend 20% of the money that you have left over after your budget to covering your budget, so covering your daily daily stuff or your monthly expenses. And then uh, the money that's left over, taking 20% of that, putting it into emergency and the rest of it, you put it towards your certain goals. Like money should, like you said, mindlessly saving. You just mindlessly save. The money just piles up and they don't have a job. So you got to assign a job. Maybe uh, the remainder of the money after the 20% you put for emergency savings. Half of that you can put towards investing uh, in, um, in, let's say, stocks and, and real estate. And then the the other half to uh, to investing in yourself, whether that's, you know, getting another degree or uh, or getting a certification or a certain experience or even traveling. Traveling is a huge, uh, huge uh, investment in yourself. And one thing I always tell my kids is that not the kids that I have, but the kids in my workshops and stuff, because I don't have any kids yet, but they're my kids. I, I live through them, essentially. <laughs> but uh, one thing I tell them is that when you invest in yourself, that always has a hundred percent return every time. You're never gonna lose from investing in yourself. That's beautifully said. I see it as like a positive feedback loop, right? Like if you don't have control of your fine. Well, you talked about this feeling of like loneliness among immigrants, um, and like not feeling like they're yeah. home, and that that's a very depressing feeling. And so that can in turn affect your finances. Yeah. And then if you don't have control of your finances, then that comes with its own mental health issues. I mean, there is a very serious link, and not to be like an alarmist here, but there is a link between debt and like oh, suicide, yeah. right? Um, one thing that I don't think many people know about, but um, so when Uber and Lyft were allowed to be in New York City, what that did is that it drove like the demand for cabs down. So, um, so many people, like for many immigrants, getting a cab medallion for a yellow cab or a green cab essentially was a way to become pretty wealthy, you know, like. Because once you own your medallion and you own your ride, you're keeping 100% of your uh, ride profits, which is a lot of money if you think about it. And uh, and what happened was that a lot of these immigrants, before Uber and Lyft were allowed into New York City, they had invested into buying the medallion, which at the time was like a million dollar or a million and a half valued at it. But then as soon as Lyft and Uber came into the city, the value dropped drastically to like $250,000 value medallion. But then the the cab drivers or some of them who bought it, they were uh, they were paying back at the price that they bought at. So they were paying back. I mean, they were making payments towards a million dollar medallion, which was not worth two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So a lot of them were committing suicide as a result. Oh my god, that's deeply upsetting. Yes, and uh, the city, I believe, did take a step to like unburdened some of the some of the rider the drivers after after those suicides happened i think like a year ago or two years ago to where now like um if you have a medallion that you bought at a certain price that was valued at a certain price 
Now I think you could pay it at the value of what it's worth now. I think. I'm not sure, but they did something like that. And then they also put a a, a halt on the number of uh, number of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers that they can there can be as a result of trying to uh, limit the amount of drivers they're doing Uber and Lyft so they could get um so there could be more usage for yellow and green cabs and black cars. I didn't know a lot of that stuff. I I I mean I of course knew that there was some dilemma. I I didn't know that um the city was making real moves towards it and that's Yeah, great. no no, it, it is um, great because um because it took a lot of advocacy on the side of uh TLC drivers mm-hmm. and yellow cab drivers to kind of to kind of get the boards of the T- the TLC boards and stuff to finally, you know, consider the yellow cabs drivers who were being taken advantage of by these uh, by these medallion owners who uh, who were making them pay it back at the value that was beforehand and uh, and you know it just took a lot of advocacy a lot of speaking up and I think that's another thing that the older immigrant generations learning that like they were raised in a government in a society where you know you don't speak up against the government you don't you don't try to um, you don't try to you know, like make it difficult because because the governments that they spoke up against made their lives that much more difficult. Whether that was the British or um, or you know any other corrupt governments after that, and um, and that's why they don't uh, they don't understand that in America it's different. That like you have to speak up, you have to advocate for yourself and for others in order to get the changes that you need. And I think um, the older generation is starting to learn that a little bit more. And are applying it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I want to switch gears just a little bit. Can you tell us about like kind of your trajectory with um, financial and mental health? Yes. So uh, like when you, so I'm an entrepreneur and when you, uh, when you, when you become an entrepreneur, you got to understand that you got to have really strong mental health to be able to thrive as an entrepreneur or even survive as an entrepreneur because you know like there's going to be a ton of ups and downs and that there's nobody is going to be there to hold your hands through it all you're going to kind of have to like figure out things on the go you're going to have to try new things you're going to have to be a risk taker and when you're being a risk taker you know that the future is uncertain and with the uncertain future you got to really have a strong positive outlook and and tough mentality to be able to persevere and to be able to get through things. So that's something that I knew about before I got into it. And, um, and that really helped me to get through some of the tougher times of into 2016 or 2017, you know, like when we were just getting started, we, I had no idea what it was. It's my first venture. And, you know, I'm just, I just always knew one thing, which was that I would never give up. I would never quit. And, and I believe in myself and you gotta have a strong belief in self. And, and and a willingness to tough out some of the tougher times to get through it. And then last year was the toughest by far because of the car accident that I was in, you know, like it was just takes a lot of mental toughness to get through that. You know, I don't want to like, I don't want to look like, you know, like that I'm trying to get pity from people or anything like that. It's just that it was super tough, you know, like suffering a brain injury. Like that's the kind of stuff that you just kind of hear about on the news. But unless you actually like live through it, it's, it's probably the toughest thing ever. Like I, 
got into this car accident, you know, like I, I suffered a traumatic brain injury and, um, and, but nobody had known that I was gotten into a car accident because, um, so the accident happened on a Tuesday night, I believe. But then my wife and my brother didn't find me until Friday because, uh, oh because God. of the, of some of the mess ups that the, the cops did that when they, um, when they responded to the, uh, the accident, they, um, so the, the cops who responded and wrote up the report, they, um, one of them had made a mistake and put the wrong date on it. So he had to take it down. So when, when my wife, when I didn't come home that Tuesday night, she had called the cops. I mean, first she called my friends to make sure, you know, that like I wasn't like staying over at one of their place or like, you know, or if they heard from me or anything like that. And my brother too. And then, then they said they haven't. And, um, and so then she uh, reached out to the police department by our house to uh, file a missing persons report. And they were here like trying to just convince her that, oh, what if he, what if he went to Atlantic City or something with his friends and things like that? Basically get what? her to like not file oh this God. report and stuff. It was, it, was, it was some weird, stupid stuff. And all my friends were there with her and they were like, no, like if he was going, he would have told us like we're his friends. He would have took us with them and stuff. And so then those cops were like looking up if there's any reports or anything like that with my name. And there wasn't because the, the, the cop had taken it down to, uh, to make that change of fixing the date and putting it back up. So then finally when they did was, it was like a Wednesday or Thursday. And, um, and then my wife had known that like they responded to, uh, to me or something like that, or a report with my name in a precinct in Brooklyn. So it, it happened, the accident happened in Brooklyn. And, uh, and then basically she went over there, found out that, that I was in a car accident and that I'm in this hospital. I was at Bellevue Hospital. And then she goes on Friday and sees me there. And I'm in the ICU with, uh, with all these stuff hooked up to me, uh, to my head, to my, um, to my arms, through needles and other monitors. And, um, and just like they're knocked out in a coma, you know, like they don't know what's going on. And, um, and basically then the doctors explained to her what happened and like, and that um, that when I'm out of the coma, that's when they're gonna really know the kind of condition I'm in and stuff. So I was I was in a coma for about two weeks after that, and then um, and then I was hospitalized for about two months. And uh, basically, then after I came home and I started physical therapy and occupational therapy, like I I got very lucky, you know. But like, but just going through that that whole experience, you know, like you have to be tough. Like I woke up in the hospital and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't even know that I couldn't talk. Like, so for a while, I couldn't talk. And then one day, I just sort of randomly started talking while in the hospital. And they didn't even know if I was going to be able to talk or when I would be able to talk. And it was just, like, a lot of uncertainty. And all this time, I have no idea what's going on. Like, literally zero idea. I didn't even realize I was in a hospital. Like, I was just, like, so far gone. Like, I, I, I thought I was in a hospital at different places at different times. But I didn't even know why I was in a hospital. And I didn't even know that I could talk or not i just thought i wasn't trying hard enough to talk oh my god um wow there's a lot to unpack there starting with police incompetence uh oh my goodness yeah and and, uh and i didn't even mention but through all that my phone and my wallet got stolen that night yeah of course and i was just like because that's the shit that happens fuck that's messed up it was some messed up stuff but uh luckily i don't remember any of it like 
Well, look, I'm glad you came out on the other side of this because you're doing some really amazing work. Um, and this is some very exciting stuff. Thank you. And, you know, it's just like, that was just like, at that point, I just knew I had to like hunker down and just get tough and just stay positive. Like, yeah. And you were able to keep your business yes. going through all of this. That's like, it's really commendable. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what are some tips you have for people who have dreams about starting whatever it is that they're wanting to start, but are worried about money? Um, I would say just start, you know, that's the best way. Cause that's, that's the best way I learned. Trust me, I made a ton of mistakes, but all those mistakes set me up to this point where now, you know, I've pivoted from doing something that was like a community-based startup to now becoming a tech startup. And that all kind of happened. Like, that was, my, that was something I wanted to be into. I mean, I don't have, like, coding background or anything like that, but I'm a, I'm a problem solver, and, and I've always admired what some of these uh, all these tech entrepreneurs were able to do and I and I always told myself why not me you know like I don't see a you know I see a Elon Musk I see a Bill Gates I saw saw you know like all these other guys but uh, you know I don't see a, I don't see a Bengali guy up there I want to be I want to be that kind of role model for um, for little brown kids boys and girls we're growing up not just in New York City, but in Dallas, in in uh, LA, in uh, in the Caribbeans, in South America, in in India, in in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in in the Middle East, all around the world. To see that a kid that might look like them, or act like them, or recognize from where they're from, can do it too. So that's that's just always been my inspiration to keep going. And for anybody out there who's thinking about doing something, or and or want to act on something, I would say just do it. You know, like listen to Nike and just do it. Get out there. And you're gonna you, you're gonna make mistakes. Don't don't try to act like I'm gonna do it when I'm ready and I don't make any mistakes. No, you can't do that. You have to just get out there and just kind of do it and just be ready to be very tough and perseverant. I've heard a lot of no's and I've heard a lot of uh, you know like naysayers. I've also you know failed a lot and have come up with a lot of roadblocks but you know like and a lot of them is due to my mistakes and my inexperience but at the same time you know like I don't I don't have a rich daddy or a rich uncle to take me under their wing and kind of show me the ropes or or you know teach me or where I could learn with like a cushion of like oh you know like if I fail I still have daddy's money to you know go back to no I don't have that but but I learned and I learned quick and, and that's the kind of mentality that you got to take into it. Anybody out there listening that wants to pursue their dreams or pursue their business idea, just act on it. Act on it and be ready to learn. Be ready to fail and learn. Failing is not a bad word in entrepreneurship. Failing is a rite of passage. You're going to fail at something at some point, but you're going to learn from that. And that's going to be the best lesson ever. And to this point, you know, like it's not about my wins that define me. It's about my losses. And that's what I would, you know, like say to anybody out there listening. Failing is a rite of passage. I'm gonna write that down for the kids. I'm, I'm feel like I'm just gonna like tell them that every day. Right. Like no, it's, it really is. You know, like it's, it's been my rite of passage, and, and I'm sure there's a ton of other entrepreneurs out there who feel the same way. Yeah, for sure. We're getting a little late into the episode, but uh, I wanna. I want to start wrapping this up, but before I do that, I wanted to ask you, um, what are some of your 
goals with Money Hub? And what's your ideal scenario with Money Hub? Like, are you hoping for a world in which Money Hub becomes obsolete? What is your vision for so, Money Hub? Um, my, um, my mission for the Money Hub is for it to be the tool that's used around the world and not just around the country for, uh, for teaching kids how to set up their goals and how to plan towards meeting their, um, meeting their dreams and goals in the future to where they financially plan for it because that's like the biggest obstacle towards getting to any goal, you know, like, but if you plan for it, you don't necessarily need to have a lot of money, but you just got to plan accordingly. And if you do, you will get to your goal. And that's, that's what I want to get across. And, and we want to be the go-to to everywhere. And um, we, it's just not, it's just not possible for us to be obsolete in the future because nobody is born to, um, born to parents or not everybody is born to parents who are, you know, like wealthy and they've never made financial mistakes ever in their life. And I think that's where it comes down to like us as humans, we always feel like we're not as good as financially as we think we should be. But what we got to understand is that those failures or those mishaps that we made financially are teachable moments. And, and if we take those teachable moments and actually teach the kids that, then I feel like we could be somewhat obsolete, but at the same time, we're going to adjust as we go. And um, we really want to be the one-stop hub for, um, for all things, uh, all things dream and future building for youths of any and all backgrounds from any part of the world. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. I think it would be basically impossible to to become obsolete, uh, especially because like money is always changing, right? Like the value of money is always changing, even if you have like a ton of savings. Um, the value of that money is also actually yeah. shrinking because there's inflation and stuff, right? So it's just, um, yeah, it's it's tough. Like, of course, I would love a world in which everybody knew everything that they could know about finances and they were all well off and they were doing well and they're mentally happy, but that's just obviously not the scenario, but this is such a great solution. Uh, if, uh, since like, you know, since that's obviously not possible. Yes. Thank you. And, and, and I think just like understanding like things that, that like don't get across through some of the, the mainstream media is what confuses people a lot of times, like something like, Oh, you know, like, like during this pandemic, somebody like billionaires like added billion added like billion dollars worth of uh, to their net worth. Somebody like Jeff Bezos, for one example, I think he added like thirteen billion to his net worth during during COVID. But people have to understand that's not like that's not like him getting thirteen billion dollars in dollars into his pocket. That's literally because of his stock prices going up, and he owns a a, a huge chunk of. Amazon stocks, obviously, because he's he's the founder, and uh, and that's what is tied to his net worth. That's what makes his net worth go up so high, or it makes it come down. And it's all tied to the success of Amazon. And Amazon obviously thrived during a time where people could not shop or or order things outside. So what they did, they do online shopping. So so it was meeting a need, and it um and that's what drove his wealth up. So people have to understand that he, it's not like he went and he like took took money out of people's pockets while they were going through miseries. That's not what he was doing. But obviously he was 
tied to something that's a great way of building wealth in this country on any, or in any other capitalistic society, which is tied to uh, the stock markets and owning stocks and how if they appreciate you could go from, you know, like being a, being a millionaire to being a billionaire overnight, essentially. Yeah, and then, then there's a lot of arguments to be made about how much um, about like, you know, lots of people talk about how like, you know, his workers are underpaid and etc. And this is why um, Amazon is a problematic company. But at least in terms of COVID, uh, yeah, you know, his money's all tied up in, in Amazon stock and stuff. And like that's an important takeaway for us, like, you know, regular humans too. like, we should be investing. Exactly. Well. Like, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that his his monetary success is tied to his uh, his morality like obviously morally right. that's wrong of like you know like not treating your works workers properly but you also got to realize that not, it's not like he's like getting wealthy off of the the money that he's not giving his workers he's getting wealthy off of the amount of users that are using Amazon which is all of us so if we really want him to change or want him to really understand that he should treat his workers better. We gotta, we gotta boycott Amazon. Yeah, I think you, I think you're right. I think it's really important to criticize a billionaire or, or like how billionaires are made, um, but also like understand what exactly exactly, we're about. and to really understand that the, the the financial instruments behind behind how somebody gets so wealthy or how somebody becomes a billionaire. You know, like on the top ten billionaires, there's very few people there who aren't necessarily um were entrepreneurs or who started out you know like not without a lot of, not with a lot of money you know like they essentially to become a billionaire you gotta have some sort of business or something tied to the stock market it's the, the age of um oil tycoons or real estate tycoons are behind us it's it's all about now about companies that that go public it's about entrepreneurs who then build something that changes the world and, and and Amazon, as much as we hate what Jeff Bezos does to his workers and stuff, you got to realize that Amazon changed the world. And, and yeah, you're right. That's um, kind of the sad truth right now. And, and that's mm-hmm. why it reflects in its value of the stock market, of, of, the, sto- of the stock price of Amazon. So um, I do want to start wrapping this up, but one last question for you. Uh, is there anything that we've talked about today? And I know we covered a lot of ground. Uh, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to add uh, in terms of advice for people or, um, yeah, anything like that? So I, I think one thing that I would like to share for everyone to really understand is to uh, to build a better relationship with, with our money, with, with the finances that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. So then once we do that, when we, once we have a better relationship with the money that we have, where we understand the kind of money that we're bringing in and then understand the kind of money that we're spending and understand the kind of money that we're saving and the kind of money that we're investing. And if you do that, amongst other things, you know, like then money stops becoming a worry in your life. And when it stops becoming a worry, it stops impacting your mental health negatively. So for any of us that wants to t- take a really to want to have a good peace of mind and to be able to sleep better at night, to be able to uh, think high, better of themselves, you got to first figure out your relationship with money. And if it's a negative, if it's a weird one, then you got to fix it. You got to fix it to your 
to your liking because at the end of the day we are the masters of our life so uh so we got to take we got to be honest with ourselves and we got to be honest with our financial situations and take control of it and we can all take control of our finances yeah can't have ownership over finances if you don't have ownership over your mental exactly. health exactly beautifully um, okay, it was great having you. How can we find you if we want to get Absolutely. in touch? Absolutely. So you guys could um, find me on on LinkedIn or Facebook, which is at Mohammed Faisal. So just just my whole name, and you can find it. And also um, at the Money Hub, and also um, on on Instagram or Twitter at m o underscore f a i s a l l. Uh, and then, or at Money Hub NYC. If, you, if any of you guys who are teachers or um, or have a big cohort of kids that you work with, or or an employer looking to provide financial education for your employees, um, you can reach out to me at Faisal F A I S A L at Money Hub NYC dot org, which is my email address to uh, possibly set up a way for you guys to subscribe to our app, which we're launching in September. Love it. I'm going to post all of this in the episode description so people can just click through. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, everyone. That is the end of our episode. If you liked this episode, tell all your friends about it and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or any other platform in which you can leave reviews. It's super helpful um, to just spread the word about the This Condition. Uh, Thank you again for listening, and I hope you have a magical day.